Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, a lot of people say this time of the year is when loneliness can set in. The U.S. has a loneliness and social isolation epidemic. According to health officials, we'll hear about some efforts to improve the situation. What are small communities to do when their newspaper shuts down? We'll visit one area where residents are stepping up. The Woman They Could Not Silence. It's a book based on Elizabeth Packard. She was wrongly placed in an asylum in the 19th century, but wound up becoming an advocate for those needing mental health treatment. The book's author will join us. We'll visit a water treatment facility to see how it's handling more heavy rain events and also go inside a nuclear power plant and we'll take a listen to some of Illinois' hip-hop roots. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Loneliness is not just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and social health. That's according to a recent U.S. Surgeon General advisory. For Side Effects Public Media, Alex Lee reports on how a health care system in Indiana is addressing loneliness and social isolation in patients. Gladys Tandy is at a community center on the west side of Indianapolis with more than a dozen other dancers. She's ready to line dance and have fun with the group. They sing happy birthday to Gladys. She just turned 71, and she's here with Amanda Oliver for their tradition of line dancing classes, which they've kept for the past three years. Line dancing has changed my life tremendously. I was um, going into a state of depression. The two women are self-described BFFs, but they're not your typical friends. Here's Amanda talking about how they met. I met... um, my sister Gladys, we're sisters now. <laughs> I yes. met her through the uh, Indiana University um, Companion um, Program. That's the Indiana University Health Congregational Care Network. The program connects patients who are at risk of being isolated and lonely with volunteers from participating churches and mosques. The idea is to let patients have more friends, someone to check in on them and help them have better access to community resources like transportation. Gladys has been through a rough time. From a breast cancer diagnosis to caring for her brother, who had a stroke and then losing him. Her doctor believed she was lonely and depressed and referred her to Amanda in 2020. And since she's been in my life, we have uh, just gotten so close. You would not believe the things that Amanda and I have in common. The U.S. has a loneliness and social isolation epidemic, according to the U.S. Surgeon General. Half of adults say they're lonely. Young adults and the elderly are more at risk, as well as people with lower incomes and those from racial minorities. Dr. Belinda Watts is a primary care physician at IU Health. She now refers more than 60% of her patients to the companionship program at the hospital. Social isolation um, leads to more um, health issues, um, cardiovascular, sleep issues, anxiety, depression, diabetes, stroke. Um, And if we can help those through trying to connect people and remove the isolation barrier, uh, I think the better off we are. Loneliness and lack of social connection increase level of cortisol, the stress hormone. This could weaken the immune system, increase inflammation in the body, and affect heart health. In fact, researchers study loneliness as a risk factor for negative health outcomes, kind of like how they study diets and exercise. 
and they say lack of social connection can be as dangerous as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Julianne Holt-Lundstad is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. She's also the lead science editor of the U.S. Surgeon General Advisory. And so this really just uh, helps us think about just how important we need to take our relationships for our health. Congregations are one place to start, says Jay Foster. He's the vice president of spiritual care at Indiana University Health. This is, is what spiritual care what chaplaincy does, which is to walk alongside, be a listening presence to people in the hospital who are having, you know, really, really terrible crises very often. The work they do started as a three-year pilot program and is now part of the hospital's operating budget. The hope is to help more patients like Gladys. My body is beginning to feel so much better because of the exercise and my husband loves it because he says that my attitude has changed. <laughs> Gladys and Amanda will dance for an audience at a nearby theater right after their class to further their connection one dance move at a time. I'm Alex Lee, Side Effects Public Media. The death of the newspaper has been long predicted, but over the decades, they found a way to survive. Things look bleak in western Illinois, though. Gannett, the largest newspaper chain in the country, ended months of little to no coverage in Macomb by closing its office on the city's downtown square. But there are some reasons for optimism, as community members have stepped up to fill in coverage gaps caused by a growing news desert. Alex Degman brought this report to us in the spring, and today we revisit the story. Relics of a bustling news town are still visible walking through the courthouse square. A sign for WGEM, the NBC TV affiliate in Quincy, still hangs from a building on the southeast corner of the square. A reminder that just 20 years ago, Macomb boasted two daily newspapers, three radio newsrooms, frequent attention from the Quincy television stations, and robust college journalism programs. But on a beautiful early spring afternoon in 2023, the tone is very different. The doors to the office of the McDonough County Voice are locked. Peeking inside, there's no furniture. The building was emptied as Gannett got ready for the lease to end. But to hear local reporters tell it, Gannett has been checked out for a while. There's been almost no local coverage for at least six months. That's Tri-State's Public Radio's Rich Egger earlier this year. The last local story on The Voice's website is from November 2022. It's October 22 for the Monmouth Review Atlas, another Gannett paper. The Galesburg Register Mail's last local item came from a reporter in Peoria, and an error message popped up when trying to access local news in the Canton Daily Ledger. This is all a big problem for Patrick Stout, who's been in Macomb Media since 1983 and a reporter since 88. At its peak, there were six reporters covering City Hall. We had to double the, the ch number of chairs in the news gallery to, to get them all in. Full disclosure, Pat and I have a little history. He was my academic advisor at Western, a co-worker during public affairs programming on commercial radio, and later competition when I worked for public radio WIUM. Your typical barometer in a town this size is what do the, where, what do the elected officials read or listen to? City officials made it clear they listened to, watched, and read everyone. Macomb Mayor Mike Inman has been in local government for decades, serving on the McDonough County Board and Macomb City Council before becoming mayor in 2011. He says the large media presence was good. 
It meant people were getting good information. You know, you could count on uh, at least somebody trying to dig for the facts. The changes in Macomb's media landscape did not happen overnight, but residents began to notice. And in 2017, a new journalism venture was launched. Right now we have, I believe, eight correspondents. Um, and they all covered different areas. That's Lynn Campbell, editor of the Community News Brief. They have around 2,000 subscribers that pay 65 bucks a year. The brief publishes three times a week, including a free version for anybody to grab around town. The other thing about this venture, it's a family affair. My husband delivers. I'm, you know, editor, sales manager, janitor, <laughs> do a little bit of everything. My daughter is a paginator and designer. Um, my niece, Lisa, is the office manager. Clearly, it's important to the Campbell family, but it's also become an important part of the community over the last few years. Mayor Inman says the city also noticed declining coverage in The Voice, so they put their money elsewhere in the brief. We've got a burgeoning young startup here that seems to have a commitment to having feet on the ground, boots on the ground, reporters in meetings. I mean, why wouldn't we want to support that? The correspondents also venture into neighboring communities like Industry, Colchester, Blandonsville, towns with populations between 500 and 1,500 that get barely any attention from the media. The old adage, if it bleeds, it leads, generally does not apply here, as stories about restaurant openings and scholarship winners usually take front page above the fold precedence over crime or government stories. There's so many good things happen in these small communities, whether it be organizations, schools, whatever, that, you know, we get all this negative noise all the time and national and, and news through TV and Internet and everything else. You know, let's have something a good feel. Old school journalists might scoff at this setup. How could a startup paper that places feel-good stories above so-called hard news that takes advertising money from the city be expected to hold people in power to account? Mark Jacob was a longtime editor of the Chicago Tribune and Chicago Sun-Times, and he now serves on Illinois' local journalism task force. He says larger, more established outlets have faced these same dilemmas, and it just comes down to doing the job. You know, there's a similar question whether it, even if it's a you know, 100-year-old commercial product, whether the editors are willing to, you know, to write a bad story about the supermarket that advertises in their newspaper. So, I mean, so it's just a matter of getting people to, you know, to be hard-nosed journalists and to, you know, to go where the news is and to ask hard questions and to hold powerful people to account. The collection of bylines in the brief is essentially a who's who of Macomb print journalism. Darcy Schinberger, Patrick Stout, and Helen Spencer alone, for example, combined for more than 50 years of reporting experience in Macomb. Jacob thinks the brief and similar startups popping up across the state can work long term. If you have a, have a situation where local news outlets are run by, you know, some guy who's uh, got a part-time job elsewhere and he does spends, you know, 10 hours a week working on it. And then there's another three or four people who are doing the same. That's healthy. That's people, you know, that that's people chipping in to make their own news environment better. And uh, we just need to see that. Uh, America needs, needs local news. Right now, it's Macomb's only professionally run local newspaper putting out local content, and it appears it may stay that way for a while. Gannett has an opening for one reporter at the Galesburg Register Mail. Someone they say will cover the city, the county, schools, businesses, and breaking news while also developing an enterprise beat and posting stories to multiple online sources. Meanwhile, Gannett is not looking for reporters in Monmouth, Canton, or Macomb. I'm Alex Degman.
This year marked the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. New York is credited as the birthplace of the cultural movements, but Illinois has roots of its own, as Yvonne Booz tells us. It was the summer of 1973. DJ Kool Herc was DJing at a Bronx back-to-school jam. The MC experimented with sound by taking break beats of two songs and mixing them together. Break beats are drum beats that are sampled from existing songs during the breaks from the lyrics. This was the start of hip-hop, and it quickly spread across the country. King Tim III, Personality Jock, is noted as the first recorded rap song. It was released in March of 1979. The Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight is said to be the first successful rap record. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. But some say rap was recorded way before that and even before that New York party. Carico Kingdom Rock Sanders is a co-founder and curator of the Chicago Heritage Hip Hop Museum located in the city's Bronzeville area. Other co-founders include Daryl Artistic Roberts and Brian Gorman. Sanders points out that comedian and soul singer Pigmeat Markham recorded a song in the 1960s called Here Comes the Judge. I just want to remind people that Pigmeat Markham was 51 when he recorded that rap song. So <laughs> it was an old man's sport when he did it. The song was recorded at Chicago's Chess Records. It is considered a comedy record, but as you can hear, it sounds very similar to what we call rap music. Like many things, Sanders says hip-hop was rebranded and renamed. Sanders isn't the only one to say rap music was around before the 70s. Wait a minute, they said 1973? That was Sonny Crudup. He owned Ubiquity Records in Rockford. This long-standing store closed in 2009, but it was the place that most of the community relied on for their hip-hop tunes. Crudup remembers a New York group called The Last Poet. When the revolution comes, when the revolution comes. He says that was the first time he experienced the art form. Although he credits New York for birthing the craft, he says Illinois played an important role in specifically Rockford. And I'm not bragging. We in Illinois, you know, we're sitting right here in the middle of Rockford. We probably was the ones that brought hip hop out. Because we had people coming from Beloit, we had them coming from Freeport, Elgin, Aurora, uh, down in DeKalb, uh, Dixon. He says Rockford was a testing ground because he says at the time, Chicago was into house music. Crudup walks around his daughter's restaurant that has his namesake, Sonny's Place, showing me pictures of different hip-hop artists who visited his store. They were here in Rockford, I think, at, uh, was it the time? Another component of hip-hop is dance. Sanders says a historic music program showcased the dance component before it had a name. Soul Train started here in Chicago in 1970. I learned how to pop lock and do the robot and all those special dances from watching the Soul Train. I didn't know what hip-hop was when, when I was watching Soul Train. While people go back and forth about how and where the art form got started, some agree that the culture changed the narrative for many inner-city youth. 
Sanders says it saved a lot of lives in Chicago, and he says he wants that part to be celebrated. Hip-hop was like the first organic violence prevention mechanism that was ever created. Like, that's what I want y'all to remember. That's what I want the kids to remember. Victor Rivera is a DJ and hip-hop dancer in the Rockford area. He is much younger than Crudup and Sanders, but he remembers how hip-hop influenced him. Um, you know, people thought we were just like ghetto hood kids. You know, we, we would get kicked out of things all the time, uh, like rec centers and stuff, because they thought we were bad, but we, we, we were trying to avoid that lifestyle. Rivera says hip-hop is a bridge that brings young and old people together. There's a lot of uh, artistic art, art, uh, outlets that can come from it, but there's also revenue for people who can DJ and want to rap and just trying to make it, who want to dance. There's just so many great outlets. He says the art form is alive and well, especially in Rockford, and he doesn't see it going anywhere anytime soon. I'm Yvonne Booz. You see, I am Wonder Mike, and I like to say hello. I'm to the black, to the white, the red. We've got more ahead. You're tuned in to Statewide. Stay right here. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Kate Moore's book, The Woman They Could Not Silence, details Elizabeth Packard's 1860 involuntary commitment and abuse she suffered at an Illinois asylum. It also profiles her advocacy. The book stirred a petition to rename a state mental health center in Springfield for Packard, replacing that of Andrew McFarland, a doctor who participated in her wrongful insanity diagnosis. Earlier this summer, the facility was renamed for Packard. Reporter Maureen McKinney spoke with the author to find out how someone from Great Britain came to tell this story. I am so thrilled that that injustice has been overturned. And I'm so proud of Elizabeth that her incredible achievements have been recognized. And, you know, this is a woman who, while she was remarkable in her lifetime and achieved success, she was always belittled by people. You know, that accusation of madness, that stay in an asylum was always leveled against her as she continued to try to provoke change in the world. And it just feels so fitting that finally, you know, 160 years later, we are saying, no, he was wrong, she was right. And we recognize and celebrate Elizabeth Packard as the pioneering activist and a woman who could not be silenced and hear her voice sings loud and proud at last. I wanted to ask how you came to write about Elizabeth Packard. So it was a bit of the topsy-turvy genesis of the book, The Woman They Could Not Silence, really, because I decided on the theme I wanted to write about before I had heard the name Elizabeth Packard, I was inspired to write about the way that women for centuries have been silenced and undermined by this false claim that we're crazy when we're not. And so what I did was I went looking for a woman in history who was sane, but simply for using her voice had been accused of being mad. And I found Elizabeth Packard in this random University of Wisconsin essay about lunacy in the 19th century. And the moment I read her name, I, I Googled her to see what her story was about. And I could not believe this heroine, basically. The reason I wanted to write about Elizabeth Packard is because, firstly, she's the most phenomenal woman. She's strong. She's resilient. She is empowering, inspiring, and a complete force of nature who actually gets things done. 
And secondly, her story itself is gripping, shocking, enraging, and yet also has a happy ending. The story of Elizabeth Packard starts on the cusp of the American Civil War in June 1860, and it starts with a simple question. What would happen if your husband could commit you to an insane asylum just because you disagreed with him? And that's how Elizabeth Packard's story starts. Tell me a little bit more about what made her such a trailblazer. So, as I say, Elizabeth's story starts with her. She's a housewife in 1860s Illinois, and she is sent to this insane asylum where she is under the care of Dr. Andrew McFarland. And she is stunned, firstly, that this is allowed when she is a sane woman and all she has done is, you know, it has been, she's been assertive. She's been, you know, someone who has not been cowed by her husband's threats. Um, but it's entirely legal um, to send your wife to an asylum in Illinois in the 1860s. It was actually in black and white. Husbands could send their wives to asylums by request and specifically without evidence of insanity. That was actually what was on the statute books. And the reason Elizabeth's personality is so compelling and the reason I've written about her in The Woman They Could Not Silence is because she doesn't take this line down and she determines not only will she fight for her own freedom, but she will fight for all the other women that she finds in the asylum. That includes other sane women who've been put there because they're problematic or they're difficult for their families. But it also includes people who are genuinely mentally ill and who are being controlled and abused and are not receiving you know, the care that we would all want to give people who struggle with their mental health. You know, Elizabeth Packard was ahead of her time in being compassionate and in striving for compassion nationwide for those with mental illnesses. Was it commonplace in that time period? As shocking as it is to us today, it absolutely was. As I say, it was actually on the statute books that you know, husbands could send their wives to asylums by request. And the received medical wisdom of the age basically said that you know, any woman who kind of pushed the boundaries socially, so that could be you know, she might be ambitious, she might want to study or even simply read novels, um, she might want to use her voice, uh, she might want to, as I say, you know, rebel against her husband. These women were seen as unnatural because they weren't, you know, performing in the way that society said a normal, in inverted commas, healthy woman should behave. So they were seen as unnatural, therefore diseased in some ways, and therefore mentally ill. But it actually went beyond this sort of, you know, societal perception of an assertive woman is a mad woman. Actually, any woman was seen at risk of going mad, because they thought that women's you know, female bodies were actually the root cause of a mental illness. So actually, a woman could do anything and she might find herself locked up in an asylum because of this false claim of craziness that would be hurled against her. When did that start to change, do you know? And how much influence did Elizabeth have on that change? 
Well, I think a, a couple of, of things are, are true. And um, one thing I would say is, you know, since the woman they could not silence came out, which was a couple of years ago in June 2021, I have been shocked by the number of readers who've contacted me to say I have experienced a similar thing. And in fact, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write about this historical silencing of women through the false claim that we're crazy is because I can see that that still happens today. It is not usually as extreme as someone sending you to an insane asylum, but we see it in our public discourse. You know, the, the way that madness and insanity is hurled about as a way to undermine and dismiss people's views, perhaps because they're being political women or because they're making an allegation of abuse or rape. This still happens today. So there have obviously been changes to some degree, and Elizabeth Packard was a big part of that in terms of she was successful in protecting patients, getting inspectors into asylums to oversee them. She was successful at protecting patients' rights so that there wasn't censorship of their mail. She was successful as well in fighting for equality for women, you know, gaining small steps on that long road that we're all still walking, you know, women having the right, for example, to retain their own earnings. So Elizabeth achieved an awful lot in her own lifetime, but I'm sure that even she would agree there is still a lot more that there is to be done. Unfair question being that you're from Great Britain, but do you see <laughs> parallels in the commitment of Mary Lincoln? Yes, there, there definitely are parallels. And, and I think what's interesting about the case of Mary Todd Lincoln is that happened um, a couple of decades after Elizabeth um, was institutionalized. And it was thanks to Elizabeth's campaigning, um, her insistence, for example, that if you were accused of insanity and there was a threat to lock you up in an insane asylum, you should have the right, even if you were a married woman, to have a jury trial. That's how they used to decide it in those days. Uh, men, when Elizabeth was institutionalised, could have a jury trial, but she was denied one because she was a married woman. But thanks to the campaigning she did, she got that law changed. And so when Mary Todd Lincoln is under threat of being institutionalised, and interestingly enough, Elizabeth's own doctor, Dr. McFarland, was one of the psychiatrists who was saying that Mary Todd Lincoln was insane and should be locked up in an as asylum for life. Um, because of Elizabeth's campaigning, Mary Todd Lincoln got that jury trial and there were other uh, safeguards, um, thanks to Elizabeth, that ultimately meant Mary Todd Lincoln was able to live the rest of her life as a free woman. Obviously, you know a lot about it. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about how Mary Lincoln came to be committed? Um, well, to be honest, it's a long time since I've looked at my notes on Mary Todd Lincoln. Um, my memory off the top of my head is that um, people were worried about how she was um, behaving, which is to say behavior was often uh, a sort of starting point for a woman's institutionalization and her family tried to get her committed. I think in particular her son uh, was behind it and he did seek other opinions and as I say McFarlane's was one of those that said uh, Mary Todd Lincoln should have been institutionalized but ultimately it was overturned. And I'm 
really interested in how you came to bring Illinois-related history to light. Mm. Um, I mean, it's one of those, yeah, sort of serendipitous journeys, to be honest. I mean, Illinois is like my adopted home state now. Um, I first wrote an Illinois history book with the Radium Girls back in 2017. And that came about because I directed a play about them in London and realised through my research for my production that there was no book that existed that told the story of the Radium Girls. You know, these amazing American women who were poisoned by the radium paint they worked with and then courageously fought for justice, even though they were dying, even though the odds were stacked against them. And I felt so moved by their powerful story that I thought these women deserve a book. And yes, I'm based in London and I'm British, but I want to give them a voice. I want to write a book about them that celebrates their personal triumphs and tragedies. I want their story to be known. And so I wrote that book as a complete passion project and was amazed when it became a New York Times bestseller and people took it to their hearts. I'm so grateful to everybody, um, you know, listening who has read that book, The Radium Girls, because my mission was to celebrate these women, make sure that they were remembered and people reading makes that happen which just seems so special to me and then having written that book as I say I was then thinking what do I want to write about next was inspired to write about this undermining of, of women through the false claim of madness and it was just sort of serendipitous that the woman I found her story was set in Illinois and the asylum that she was sent to was Jacksonville Illinois and once again I find myself you know, giving voice to these incredible women from Illinois who modern readers, I hope, will be moved by and inspired by and will let their stories into their own lives and, you know, be lit from within by these incredible women, you know, just as I have felt that power all the way across an ocean. Author Kate Moore, her book, The Woman They Could Not Silence, profiles Elizabeth Packard, she was involuntarily committed to an asylum in Illinois in 1860 after a wrongful insanity diagnosis. For years after, she advocated on behalf of those in need of mental health treatment. The state honored Packard this year by renaming a Springfield Mental Health Center after her. The popular 70s sitcom Three's Company is enjoying a comeback in the U.S., and people throughout the country have been holding parties in honor of, wait for it, Helen Roper. The sitcom's funny and fashionable landlady, Anna Savchinka, attended a caftan crawl called the Mrs. Roper Romp in Chicago, and she filed this report. I walk into a saloon-style bar on Western Avenue, and I'm met by a sea of orange wigs and women in elegant caftans. There are tropical caftans, paisley caftans, caftans adorned with seahorses. There are more than a hundred women here dressed as Helen Roper, accompanied by only two men. I'm swiftly brought before the head Helens, Erin, Mary, and Katie, the middle-aged women behind this Southside bar crawl. They tell me they just wanted to do something crazy. We just saw it on TikTok, and we were sitting around over a couple glasses of wine. And we're like, oh my God, we should do that here. We're like, wouldn't that be so funny? And then it just kind of snowballed. Never expected. We thought it would be maybe a dozen or so of our friends from the neighborhood. And then it got onto Facebook, and it just took off. And there's people we don't even know here. And we think that's awesome. I wasn't born when this show came out. Can you guys explain to me 
why all of you are wearing orange wigs I and captains. I think it's a throwback to our childhood. Yes, but as a kid, that's all that was on. There was no Cartoon Network. There was no other stations to watch. It was naughty. It was a naughty show. To them, Helen was like a cool aunt, so it makes sense why they wanted to be Helen, why they're dressed like her on this day. Mary's sleek, modern-looking captain has stripes on the sides. Katie tells me she got her floral one on Etsy. And where did you guys get your wigs from? Oh, Amazon, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, nowadays, women are expected to look so good and filters and things like that. But today is a day to just be yourself and have fun and wear loose clothes. And, and just let go. $20 could get any Helen a ticket to the Six Bar Crawl, with proceeds going to the Finley Foundation, a charity that helps local families affected by cancer. But the ticket also came with a nostalgia for the grandiose and super cheesy show all these women watched as kids. I meet Joanne Bicep on our way to bar number two of the crawl. She sips her beer as we walk. What does uh, Helen mean to you? Oh, she's just iconic. She was just loud and just her own personality, and she didn't care what society or people thought about her. And fiercely independent, challenging the conventional norms of the 70s, especially that of her grumpy husband, Stanley Roper. And can you relate to that? Oh, hell yeah. So you don't need a Mr. Stanley... Oh, no, I don't need a Stanley. Now, it's nice to have a Stanley once in a while, but, you know, you don't need one. Hello, you look great. You look great. At the next bar, Sarita Talbert stands on the curb, showering the Helens with compliments. Talbert is wearing a bold caftan and a necklace with large turquoise stones, channeling her inner Helen, she says. I ask what she found appealing about the landlady. She is kooky. She thinks she has this sexy appeal, which is very awkward-ish, but she's a, she was a very confident woman, knowing that she owned her womanhood and she wore some mean caftans and gawky jewelry, and so she just had her own look and style of the 70s. It is at Talbert's command that the other Helens break into a familiar song as they start the trek to their next bar. On the Savchenko, the way be easy news. There's more ahead on Statewide. Stay right here. And welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The significant rainfall events in Illinois this year have resulted in some major flooding. In some locations, like the Chicago area, when those rains come, the water often mixes with sewage and makes its way to one of the many water reclamation plants in the region so it can be cleaned. But that begs the question, how do they do that? Noah Jennings went to one plant to find out. Chicago has 77 official community areas, but the Calumet Water Reclamation Plant on the far south side just might be the 78th, at least according to plant manager Neil Dorrigan. We are almost like a, a small municipality. You know, we have utilities, we have gas, we have city water, we have processed water. And, you know, we have roads, we have buildings to take care of. So with all the employees we have here, we might be bigger than some small towns. You can enter the plant off 130th Street, but you'll have to drive through several long and winding roads before you even get to the security gate blocking off the facility. The plant's campus is all high-rising pipes, machinery. It's industrial, 
but the stormwater's path really begins 350 feet below ground in the deep tunnel system. All sewage from southern Cook County and its million-plus residents goes through the deep tunnel before arriving at the plant's underground pump station. An elevator can thankfully bring you there, though some have braved the dozens of flights of stairs that dangle over the cave-like pump station. And some people come over here during lunch to run the stairs. It's so cave-like that the walls are entirely made up of limestone that's tens of millions of years old. Water from the deep tunnel passes through a coarse screen and into the pump station. Think of it like a spaghetti strainer, and it's the first step in this cleaning process. The sewage that gets through goes to one of the plant's six pumps and is shot up back to the surface to begin treatment. This is where it gets loud. And this is the only time that the water gets pumped. So we pump it to the highest elevation, and then from there, everything's gravity. The reason that is, gravity's free. That's one of the plant's engineers, Dan Mixo. Once the sewage is back above ground, its next stop is a tank that shoots out air bubbles. This sends gravel and sand to the bottom of the tank, and plant manager Dorigan says this keeps any liquids at the top. This is like Italian salad dressing, right? So you shake it up, you let it sit for a bit, the oils float to the top and all the little stuff that's flavorful sinks to the bottom. And that's basically what this does. It's slowing down the flow so those fats, oils, and greases come up top and are scraped off. The gravel and sand gets sent to a landfill, but the water is moved to the first settling tank. It's 150 feet in diameter and 19 feet deep at its peak. This is where the fats and oils that are now at the top of the water can be scraped away. After the water is done there, it moves on down the line to another tank, where this time microorganisms get blasted into the water. This is meant to naturally break down any microscopic, harmful organics lingering in the water. After making the rounds through a few more tanks, the water goes through the final step, a chlorination treatment. The chlorine deactivates the microorganisms that were shot into the water earlier and ensures that they won't reproduce. From there, the water flies down a waterfall into another underground tunnel, clean and making its way to the Little Calumet River. It typically takes about eight hours for the water to go through the plant, but when there's a heavy rainstorm, it might take longer. The plant is prepared when that happens with extra pumps and tanks. Engineer Mixo says the plant is using its heavy rain protocol more frequently because of increasing extreme weather events. We have to do our part now so that the future people who take this over can be ready for these more and more events if it keeps occurring like this. Future-proofing the plant is something at the forefront of Mixo's mind. He says whenever high schoolers visit the plant, he encourages them to consider a career in water reclamation. Mixo says it's rewarding to see the impact he and his colleagues have on ensuring clean water in the community. We just gave it the right bacteria, the right food, the right air. Mother Nature takes over and does her job. It's a beautiful thing. Noah Jennings, WBEZ News. The Clinton Nuclear Power Station in DeWitt County in central Illinois started operating in 1987. It's supposed to shut down in just a couple of years, but its owner, Constellation Energy, has applied for a 20-year extension to the license. Charlie Schlinker takes you inside the Clinton Nuclear Power Station to explore how the massive assemblage of pipes, pumps, and valves fit together. 
All right, it's a visitor's turn. Escort you guys right step back. Visitors step up, please. Takes about an hour to get through security. It's easier to visit a prison. Inside, there's a stop at the office of the resident inspectors for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. That's officially a small patch of federal land within the plant. I'm Jeffrey Stewart. I'm the senior resident inspector here at Clinton. And I am Arsalan Munuridin, and I am the resident inspector here at Clinton. After college, Arsalan spent about five years at commercial shipyards, but he returned to nuclear engineering. I was just completely inspired and uh, fascinated with the, the physics and how atoms interact. Jeff Stewart came out of the nuclear navy and submarines. He's been an operator at a nuclear plant. As an inspector, he's on the other side looking over the shoulders of operators. It kind of uh, speaks to my personality profile. I believe in doing the right thing in accordance with the procedures. Every nuclear plant has resident inspectors from the Regulatory Commission. They're the people who make sure plant workers keep up on maintenance, follow all procedures, have a robust corrective action plan, and help keep the public safe. All right, these need to be, yep, up here on your lanyard. Their ED set points are 8 millirem and 50 millirem. Steward and Minuridine take us first to the radiation monitoring office, which has a sign that lights up in cheery colors saying, every millirem matters. We have to get radiation monitors. Okay, you are all set with me. When you're done, just bring the ED. If everything works the way it's supposed to, we won't be exposed to anything much more than the background radiation everyone gets just living in Illinois. Put our hearing, hearing protection in and We'll make our way inside the plant. We card through more turnstiles and walk past barrels of discarded gloves marked as waste, through to the control building, which has diesel generators. Put it up there so it can read it and watch for the green light. There are multiple secure doors needing card access. There are stairs up and stairs down, way down. The offered hearing protection wasn't just a kindness, but necessity. It's noisy. The kind of noise varies according to the purpose of the room, from the hum of electrical equipment to turbine roar. The turbine building has the big turbine, of course, and feed pumps. It's sauna level hot. The auxiliary building has emergency core cooling equipment. There's a diesel generator that is the length of two train cars, a backup for the cooling pumps. There's an air tank the size of one a farmer uses for a house propane supply just to help the engine start. A 45,000 gallon fuel tank to supply the diesel engine is in the basement. There's various different buildings. They all have different purposes and they're all intertwined together to make one beautiful plant. There's so much equipment, there's a need to color code things, even floor-to-ceiling pipes thicker than a person. So, so any piping you see that it's red, it'll be dealing with fire protection, you know, blues for like uh, either cooling water. And those green configuration control areas is basically stay away from those areas because they're sensitive. So they have like a little bit of buffer. Anything in orange is like flex equipment. Wait, flex equipment? Minuridine says that's a more recent addition prompted by the loss of external power that led to the nuclear disaster at Fukushima, Japan. Basically, they lost all power at Fukushima and they had to deal with like a flooding type of issue with their diesel generators being submerged underwater because of the, the earthquake and then the tsunami that occurred. Nationwide, we've uh, incorporated some regulations to help combat that 
uh, accident. Over and over, Stewart and Minuridine talk about systems that are backups for other systems that are a backup. It's a bewildering recitation of defense in depth that is redundant, but maybe necessary. For instance, a system to allow high-pressure core cooling, even one component, is huge. So one of the more important valves, and you can see the, the size and the scale we're talking about, these systems are designed to put high-pressured water into the core. Just uh, the isolation valve itself, the, the size of it, you can kind of get a, an idea of how much water, uh, how much force is uh, required to to kind of stop that kind of flow. Nuclear plants have to change out the fuel rods every so often. They come out hot in a couple senses of the word, temperature and radiation. Workers store the used rods in a very deep pool of water in yet another room of the plant, as seen from a couple stories up. In one corner of the pool, there are some bundles that glow blue. That's called Cherenkov radiation. As electrons come sleeting off the fuel, they hit the water traveling faster than light is supposed to go in water. The visual effect is similar to the sonic boom a jet creates by going faster than the speed of sound in air. There will be more of a glow next month when the plant shuts down for a few weeks to refuel. Jeff Stewart says there's a requirement of a certain level of water above the top of the spent fuel bundles. So as the water level goes down, the cooling is reduced and so the amount of radiation or shielding that you get from the water, that's reduced as well. How is the water refreshed or changed out? Through the fuel pool cooling and cleanup system, there's two pumps, a couple heat exchangers and a, uh, some demineralizers that they maintain the chemistry of this water. Alkalinity, uh, suspended solids, that kind of thing is, is monitored by chemistry. Once the spent fuel rods cool some, they're supposed to go to a federal nuclear waste repository. After decades of dealing with a political hot potato of where that facility would go, there still isn't one. So the bundles are packed in casks and stored on site. Resident inspectors Jeff Stewart and Arsalan Manuradin can go anywhere in the plant at any time. They try to cover every room over a couple of weeks. They do drop-ins on the overnight shift, and when something unusual happens, they hustle. Getting the call in the middle of the night is both stressful and exciting at the same time, uh, especially when you have to come in. Whenever there's an event that occurs, that is both an opportunity and a, a time of learning. Chances are you've never seen this before. The last time that happened was in January. A fault on a power source outside the plant caused a circuit breaker to trip on the main turbine and the reactor to scram or shut down abruptly. The turbine had nowhere to put output power because both the output breakers were opened up. Normally, one of those output breakers would stay closed and it would have a route to go outside, the power generated to go outside. But the fact that both of them opened up caused there to be a power load imbalance and therefore the reactor to scram. At first, all the inspectors knew was the reactor had shut down. They asked questions. Details emerged. The Ameren utility started investigating. Turns out the fault happened 17 miles away, not at the plant owned by Constellation. It's the detective work that turns on Arcelon. He says normally they won't be simple issues. He says you are constantly being challenged. You know, I did my engineering nuclear, but you wish you had an electrical engineering degree one day, next day you wish you had a mechanical engineering degree, then you want to be a chemical engineer another day. So you're basically trying to be cross-functional and that's where a lot of your learning comes in, just 
that's the beauty of this job. Part of that challenge is assessing the state of the aging plant. Some pipes corrode or thin, older equipment can fail. Jeff Stewart says they are getting away from analog and two digital controls for the main turbine, feed water, electrohydrological controls, and so on. And that's a good thing. These plants are, are being operated, you know, in, in a lot of cases they're being extended beyond their original licenses, uh, the 40-year terms, going into the, the plant extension. So it's good to see that things are being updated continually as they grow aged. The Clinton plant has a pretty good safety record. A review of several years of inspection reports shows mostly low-level green or non-critical system problems. There was one security-related glitch in 2021. The NRC isn't saying what that was. The last time there was a greater-than-green finding by inspectors was five years ago. Even that was what they call a white-level violation, not the more serious yellow or red designations. And Arsalan Manuridin says the resident inspectors are well aware of the need to maintain a professional distance that could influence their findings. We are a part of the community, and at the same time, we still have to maintain our objectivity. You can be friendly with the site employees, but you can't be friends. And that extends to outside of work as well. I can't go home and, you know, take him out to dinner or, you know, go to his house. Constellation Energy's application for a license extension went to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission last October. It'll take about two years for the commission to decide whether to grant the request. Meanwhile, federal resident inspectors Jeff Stewart and Arsalan Manuridin will continue working to keep the plant as safe as it is secure. Five, I'm Charlie Schlenker. Four, three, two, one. Please turn around. We're out of time for statewide and out of time for this year, but we look forward to bringing you more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois in 2024. Remember, you can find us where you get your podcasts through this station's website and at nprillinois.org. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.